we line up in twos to walk from Selma to Montgomery. We're marching today to dramatize to the nation, dramatize to the world, that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens of Alabama, but particularly here in the Blightville area, denied the right to vote. To be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly, you have to disperse your order to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. Troopers here advance toward the group. See that they disperse. Party Crashers. Well, <clears throat> welcome to another episode of The Uninvited. This is your host, Jerry Jones. However you found us and wherever you decided to find us, I am so very grateful that you did. Please do us a favor. Please rate and review and subscribe, because it doesn't do any good to rate and review if you don't subscribe, right? But do that so you don't miss another one of these fine episodes. And should you give us a rating, not a ranking, a rating. Um, please give us five stars because five stars feels like love. Four stars feels like the friend zone, um, which is where I think Joe Manchin perpetually keeps his fellow Democrats in the friend zone. Um, so at the time that we're recording, it is Sunday, March 7th. And, uh, you know, I typically try to record every Sunday and Wednesday. And, you know, you all who have been watching or not watching, no one's watching the show. Uh, I, for what it's worth, I'm not sure that people are listening to the show either. <laughs> but for those of you who are listening to the show, we typically do these on Sundays and Wednesdays with a few variations. And, you know, lots of variations. Um... I was excited. Um, you ever you ever have those feelings where you're both excited to do something 
but you're also very reflective about the thing that you're about to do or the moment in which you're in. And the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm both excited and reflective today is today marks the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. Um, so Bloody Sunday, there uh, had been uh, a well-organized struggle um, you know, really being led by the Student Nonviolent Coordinate Coordinating Committee uh, and then, um, which um, the voice you heard, John Lewis, uh, who, who was uh, with SNCC, um, and it really gained traction. And the idea was to, so the Civil Rights Movement, we had secured the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, and in Alabama, um, the, you know, the leadership, civil rights leadership, um, and in an attempt to to raise the level of awareness and to raise the heat on policymakers and elected officials in the state of Alabama as it relates specifically to voting rights. Um, they decided that they were going to make an epic march from Selma to Montgomery, which Montgomery is the, the state's capital. Uh, Montgomery is, I, I don't, I, you know, other people would, you know, I'm not, I am not a civil rights historian. It's just that when I consider um, Rosa Parks in 1955, um, where she took, um, you know, nonviolent direct action, it should be noted, by the way, there's this narrative on Rosa Parks on the on on that day and I believe now I'm getting my days mixed up I believe it's December 1st 1955 I can be fact check on fact fact checked on that um but it wasn't that Rosa was tired that day and just had enough that day and just decided that she wasn't going to to move to the back of the bus um, this was a planned, literally a planned sit-in strategy. Um, and, um, the people in Montgomery, uh, NAACP, other organizing groups. So think about, so think about basically 10 years, nine and a half years, basically before, um, study, you know, bloody Sunday was, uh, Rosa Parks. But the organizers had been testing their strategy for months. And to the point, and, and there, there had been others, by the way, who had done sit-ins um, before on the bus. Um, so they, they tested it out. So <laughs> the, the civil rights movement in, in many respects is not unlike any other... Um, any 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 business idea, uh, any product launch, there is a cycle, right? You 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 ideate, you iterate, you you prototype, and you test, right? And in 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 every respect, the reason why uh, the civil rights movement was and I I would say continues to be effective, even though. As 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 um, 
the great John Lewis, may he rest in power, indicated that maybe we're too quiet. But the reason why it worked is that it was strategic. In, I mean, in order, think about like how, how does one defeat a well-funded, militarized, um, has complete and utter autonomy to inflict harm? How does one defeat opposition like that when you're not well-funded? Um, you are completely nonviolent and the state is diametrically opposed. The, the, the very entity that empowers your opposition seeks to um, take all of your power away. How does one do that except, except for being brilliant and like utterly committed to to strategy um it would be really interesting to look at the at the um um the civil rights movement through through a, a human-centered design lens i will say that marshall gans uh marshall gans is a brilliant um scholar on this issue and i, I would say even more of a brilliant teacher he's a professor uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government. I don't know if 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 Marshall is still there. Um, I have not met Marshall Gans. I've been on a couple calls with Marshall Gans, um, but he wrote a, a book. I think a seminal book, you know, "Why David Sometimes Wins," um, but really breaks down the efficacy of of the civil rights movement and, and looking at it through the lens of developing strategy, uh, with the idea that, you know, that organizing strategy is, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's simple, but it's not easy. Like the concepts are very simple to understand. Once you understand them, the real work, the difficult work is not only applying those things, but sticking with those things. But to make a long story short, back to Rosa Parks, it wasn't by happenstance that she was on the bus that day and that she just had had enough. That was organized. That was planned for months, right? And the reason why the Montgomery bus boycott as a result was so effective was because there had been, you know, the participants had received you know, hours and hours and hours of nonviolent direct action training. I did not mean for this to be <laughs> kind of an unpacking of, um, of organizing strategy, but I, I feel like this is important because the same principles that um, were applied by Rosa Parks, by those who were organizing the Montgomery bus boycott, were the same things that John Lewis and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee also applied in their efforts to march from Selma to Montgomery. Because I'm going to tell you right now, no one just decides, hey, let's go march 54 miles. And 
let's get uh, you know let's get 600 people together today and we're just gonna go and we're gonna do that I mean that's insane right so what I'm saying is that there is a planned they they they, they were prepared for the agitation and the conflict that they received. Um, they were not only prepared, but, I mean, they knew it was going to happen, right? And, you know, were it not for the incidents on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, I, there, there's just a lot of things... Um, were it not for their commitment to the cause, their ability to develop strategy, implement tactics, um, including including um, shaping the narrative and continuing the narrative. I don't know if it weren't for that kind of well organized um, opposition to oppression. I'm not even having this conversation right now. I don't think I'd be able to. I don't think I'd be able to. So I come to this podcast today, you know, mindful that it's the people, it's the people like John Lewis, and it's the thousands of people whose names and faces that we'll never know that are making this conversation possible. It should also be noted that this is the first ever um, Bloody Sunday commemoration in which we do not have John Lewis. Um, John Lewis, who was the conscience of Congress. And I, I believe that even in his um, passing, continues to be the consciousness of um not only our Congress, but I, I believe of 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 the people of, of goodwill right now. And uh, I'm, I'm mentioning, I'm talking a lot about John Lewis today, obviously because of Bloody Sunday. I'm also talking about John Lewis uh, because his home state, I think we all know John Lewis is from Atlanta. John Lewis was not from Alabama. He's from Atlanta. Um, well, let me back up. He represented Atlanta, lived in Atlanta. Um, that I mean, that's where he staked his political career uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and the reason why I feel like that's important to note about Georgia is uh, there are a couple of things that happened this week that are um, on the different sides of the same coin, but very much um, will have an impact on elections. So uh, first thing, going in reverse order, uh, the Senate did pass a $1.9 trillion COVID stimulus package this week. And um, it is not hyperbole to say that the only reason, the only reason why that was possible 
was because of the state of Georgia. Not the state, but the people. And not just the people, but black people. Not just black people, but people of conscience. Consciousness. Conscience, not consciousness. Excuse me. Conscience. It's white folks. It's Latinx folks. Um, all people who believe that um, they believe in the beloved community. Um, because the state of Georgia also gave us Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay. Um, but those two senators, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, who were each elected in, um, you know, uh, in their runoff elections, because um, those two gentlemen were elected by the state of Georgia, and because, in part, the state of Georgia voted to elect Joe Biden as president of the United States, there is a COVID bill that passed. If Georgia votes the way it typically votes, I'm not able to have that conversation. So that's one thing. That's one thing that happened. Um, in the House... This past week, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1. H.R. 1, you may or may not have heard a little bit about H.R. 1. It comes up quite a bit. <laughs> uh, I think it actually comes up every session that uh, Democrats are, even, even when Democrats aren't in power. But H.R. 1, For the People Act, For the People Act essentially is the John Lewis Act. Um... And, and the idea is to restore uh, the Voting Rights Act that was gutted. And I believe that was in 2013 when the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, pretty much um, kind of undermined uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, again, is full circle. I mean, that was part of what we saw with the march um, to Montgomery ultimately helped lead to the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Supreme Court undermined that. Uh, I'm getting my years off. May have been 2013, 2014, uh, but it's done some damage. And, you know, this, this bill would seek to kind of create some national standards as it relates to uh, voter registration, um, you know, campaign, uh, finance, um, and you know, really kind of solving the issue of partisan gerrymandering. I don't know how many of you are familiar with gerrymandering, but uh, the, the redrawing of congressional districts in such a way that it benefits one party over another. Typically, those I shouldn't say typically, I would say most recently, over the last 20 to 25 years, the gerrymandering that takes place is typically there to um, reward um, conservative, um, the conservative party, GOP, um, and this seeks to curb that. So we're looking for like to create a nonpartisan, nonpartisan commissions on, on district uh, redrawing. That passed in the House. Um, 
And so now it's up to the Senate. The Senate where we have, we kind of have 50 votes, but not really 50 votes, right? Um, and again, so Georgia is the center. And so where I was going to go before, before I kind of went on the tangent just real quick, is for me, Montgomery, Alabama is, you know, kind of like how Philadelphia, how Philadelphia was, was the capital of the original colonies. And then it became um, Washington, D.C. In many respects, I look at Montgomery as being the birthplace of civil rights or the, the, the hub for civil rights, but I do believe, I do firmly believe now that the epicenter for the struggle of not just civil rights and voting rights, but being recognized as fully human is Atlanta. And I think by proxy, the the entire state of Georgia truly represents um where we are today as a country and and where where we might go and so um hr one's passed it's going to be up to the senate now but but that's not the only thing so those are things that are going to happen at the federal level so um the senate passed the stimulus bill and it only passed because of georgia we've got uh, the john lewis bill you know um that passed the house that'll now go to the Senate, which actually has a fighting chance only because of Georgia. But at the state level, at the state level of Georgia, now we all remember Georgia, right? If we, if we can just go back in the way back machine a little bit, pres then president Trump, was on the phone with the Secretary of State's office for the state of Georgia looking for, was it 11,280 votes? Something to that effect. Um, the, the former administration essentially waged a smear campaign against um, the Secretary of State's office for Georgia, even turned uh, on, the, uh, on the governor, Brian Kemp, who has his own set of ethical challenges um, in the election that he was a part of in 2018 for the uh, for his now governorship. Uh, but the state legislature, so after everything that the state of Georgia has been through, where they were the epicenter for um, the Trump wing of the party trying to derail and to steal an election, despite everything that they've gone through, what what are the what are the elected officials in Georgia doing? They are taking a an assertive an assertive uh, stance. I would say not assertive. That's not the word. It is aggressive, and it is toxic. But they are doing everything they believe they can to undermine the integrity of democracy in their state. Um, Senate bill, it's Senate bill five, I'm sorry, no, 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 House bill, House bill 531 passed um, out of uh, the house in the state house in Georgia. 
And the bill, basically, I call it the souls to the pole bill. And what the soul to the polls bill seeks to do is that it seeks to end um, early voting, seeks to end um, black people's ability to vote the typical way they, you know, not the typical way, but a typical um, avenue for people of color of a certain age and of a, uh, a certain faith background, in this case, Christianity. Um, it's targeting black folks who, um, who go and vote on Sundays of Souls of the Poles. So Souls of the Poles, it's big here in Kansas City. It's big in pretty much any place that has a, 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 a concentrated population of, of black um, Christians soul of a certain especially of a certain age souls to the poles is a a mobilizing a mobilizing technique that is used um, to maximize uh, voter participation uh this bill um house bill 531 in georgia and i i'm 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 talking about that bill but there are about 30 bills introduced uh, anti-voting bills in the state of Georgia. They are literally all, um, it's almost like the Royal Rumble. There's a thing in, in wrestling in the WWE called the Royal Rumble. It's like a, you may know it as like a battle, battle royale, right? And the battle royale is like all of these, um, caricatures of, of, of humans in one finite space. And, and the obstacle is to, to throw as many people over the top rope as possible. Uh, and the last person standing is the winner of the, of the battle Royale. And I do feel like that the Georgia state house is a battle Royale for <laughs> race, racist, uh, anti-voting legislation. Like they're all fighting for each other to see who can be the most outlandish and racist, uh, to suppress the vote. And so I would highly recommend any of my listeners that are either in the state of Georgia or have people that they know or care about in the state of Georgia, um, as John Lewis said, we've got to make good trouble now. Good trouble, necessary trouble. But in the reason why HR1 in the House, so Georgia's not alone, by the way. Pennsylvania's looking at doing some stuff. Arizona's looking to do some stuff. I'm sure in Missouri, we're looking to do something similar. Um, states that, especially. Missouri is not as nearly as, um, as it's not in play like Arizona, like Pennsylvania. Um, but there is an effort across the country to suppress the vote. HR one stops that dead in its tracks. And so the house has passed it. Now the Senate's got it. Um, and they're going to have to deal with it. And because of Georgia, because of you know, organizers like Stacey Abrams um, and the organizations who did so much work in engaging, organizing and mobilizing voters. We have a real chance. We have a real chance right now to 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 level the playing field. And so we can stop playing political games uh, with our democracy. So there's a lot happening here. And um, there's a lot more that's going to be happening. And so I, 
I didn't have a point um, to this particular episode except to say we've got to keep our eyes and ears open. And I know it's a lot. I mean, we're all trying to, we're trying to bounce back from COVID. And, you know, and, and by the way, I, I, I would, I have, I have some thoughts on, on, on Governor Abbott's and Florida man's Ron DeSantis reopening their states. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that may have to be a mini pod, separate pod from that. Um, but we're all trying to get our lives back together. And so I know it's difficult to follow these things, but your state, while we're busy trying to, trying to get our lives back, our states are at work to undermine democracy. And the reason why this is important is that just like any, any system that's designed, okay, any system that's designed is operating on a set of assumptions. And this great American project operates, whether it is the economy, whether it is, you know, you just, you know, pick a social system, right? The, one of the things that we assume is a is an accessible um, and functional participatory democracy. And what our states are doing right now is they're seeking to disrupt that system, the you know the system of democracy. And the reason why that's important is whatever it is that you do with your life, if you are a business person, whether you're a student, uh, what, whatever it is, whatever it is you do, all of it rests on the fact that we have a participatory democracy, right? And if that goes away, whatever it is, the thing that you rely on, it's like a leg on a stool. You take that leg out and it is complete and utter chaos, and so it is in everyone's interest, everyone's interest to pass HR1. It is in everyone's interest to understand um, any, anything that stands in the way of free and fair elections and to identify those threats and to put pressure on their elected officials to say, you must defend democracy, not your idea of it. We're not talking about defending the idea of democracy. We're not talking about defending one's interpretation. We're not talking about defending uh, one skewed point of view that helps people get elected. Those things aren't democracy. We're talking about actual, actual democracy. And in actual democracy, every American of legal voting age should have the right to vote full stop. No making it difficult to register. 
no making it difficult to vote. Every legal age American has the right to vote. And anything that is not that must be opposed. And I know we don't have the energy to do it all the time, but we've got to fight it. The work of democracy, it is like, I don't know, it's like water. It's like drinking water. Um, so I think in order for us to have a healthy democracy every day, there are just going to be some things that we're going to need to do and check in on in order to make sure that our democracy doesn't die. I, yeah, uh, I was going to, I was getting ready to apologize for the hyperbole, but I'm not sorry. And in fact, um, I think I may have just sugarcoated it a little bit. It's, uh, if we want in America, if we really want it, man, we're going to have, I mean, honestly, and this is going to sound crazy because I know we don't have this kind of time. I think we need to commit 30 minutes a day to democracy. 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a day. That can include reading the news on, you know, reading up on our elected officials, reading about what's going on in our state house, our city hall, state house, and uh, at the federal level. It could include checking in with your friends and loved ones, making sure um, they've, you know, they're registered to vote. Um, or it's even like, even just having a, you know, like intentional conversations about what are the things that you're concerned about? So democracy isn't just voting and democracy isn't just doing geeky ass, you know, policy research, um, like I enjoy doing. Democracy is about engaging on democracy itself. So this is my challenge. I, and I, I, I hate to say that I just pulled this out of my ass, but I kind of did, and I, now I'm going to run with it, and I hope you will too. 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a day. In the same way that we need to be spending 30 to 40 minutes, you know, taking care of ourselves, yoga, walking, biking, some sort of like physical exercise, taking care of our body. 30 minutes a day to nurture democracy. Whether it's watching the news, reading the news, listening to the news, um, Googling voting records on local, state, and federal officials. Um, and probably the most important thing is having intentional conversations with the people in your social circle about protecting and defending democracy. 30 minutes a day. If we each did 30 minutes a day, you know what? Here, here's what I'm going to do. This is a total ramble, by the way. And you may not even still be listening at this point. Um, it doesn't have to be 30 minutes a day. It could be like 10 minutes a day. It could be 10. 70 minutes. Or, you know, you get a day off. 60 minutes a week. 60 minutes a week. One hour a week. One hour a week dedicated to democracy. If every 
eligible voting adult spent an hour a week focused on protecting and preserving democracy. How much better are we going to be in 2022 when it comes um, time to vote? How much better off are we going to be when the former president, the you know, 45th president, decides he's going to run again? An hour a week. Hour a week. I'm going to dig into this. I want to thank you all for indulging me on a rather odd and <laughs> divergent podcast. But the goal here. The goal here is for us to figure out how we together can make some good trouble. That's all we want to do is make some good trouble. And on that note, my friends, I'm going to get out of here and uh, I'm going to work on, I'm going to actually take some of these ideas and start teasing them out a little bit. And uh, I might come back to you all here. Uh, give me a, give me a couple of episodes here. Uh, probably. Well, definitely next Sunday. Um, next Sunday's show is going to be. Um, next Sunday's show is going to be uh, an important show as well, uh, and in fact, the show next Sunday may actually take place next Saturday. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that more on on Wednesday, but yeah, let's keep being good to ourselves, good to each other. Let's get into good trouble. One hour a week. Uh, protecting and preserving democracy. One hour a week. You can do it. All right, my friends. Be well. I'm going to catch you on the next episode of The Uninvited. Peace.